The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Daniel. The title of my message for you today is The Power of Convictions. And when we talk about a conviction, we're talking about a firmly held belief system. Your convictions are your core values. These are the areas in your life that you are unyielding in. You're unwilling to bend on these subjects. And we need to be crystal clear about what those areas are, because if we're not, we'll end up just drifting along with the cultural current of the day. And that's an easy thing to do. I mean, I don't think I need to convince anyone in here of the fact that the days we find ourselves living in currently, they seem to be getting darker and darker, spiritually speaking. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? It, it, it appears, and I, I, I think every generation feels this way, but you know, with a bit of experience now, I feel like you know, things are darker now than when I was growing up. And perhaps the generation before me would say the same thing, the next generation will say the same thing after them, but we're, we're sliding in the wrong direction and it feels like the, the very threads of the moral fabric of society are coming unglued. If there ever was a time when America was a Christian nation, that's certainly no longer the case, right? The culture today celebrates what God's word condemns and it parades and flaunts what God finds appalling. Making matters worse, if anyone dares to stand up and speak out for what God's word says is either right or wrong, they are criticized and ridiculed and, and even canceled. We live in a cancel culture. And because of all these factors, there's a tremendous amount of pressure on all of us to conform, to fit in, to behave like the world and embrace the ideologies and belief systems of the world in which we live. So for those of us who are trying our best to live a godly life, this can pose a significant challenge, as you might agree. So the question, how are you supposed to follow God in the midst of a faithless world? And I believe the book of Daniel may hold some keys and some answers for us. You see, like us, Daniel and his friends found themselves living in a context that was dark and depraved. They found themselves in wicked Babylon. Yet somehow they managed to hold on to their convictions and strong, stay strong in their faith. And by reading their story, we're going to learn how to remain strong in the midst of the dark days in which we live. So with that as a backdrop, let's go ahead and begin reading in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 1. <clears throat> it says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. And these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. All right, so the opening verses of the book, they set the context for us and paint the backdrop for everything that's about to unfold. And essentially what we find is they tell the same story but from two very different vantage points. 
The first verse gives us the earthly perspective, the historical perspective. And there we learn that in a particular year, King Nebuchadnezzar came down from the north from Babylon. He besieged Jerusalem and he ultimately succeeded in overthrowing it. And we know that this happened in the year 605 BC. It was one of three different um, besiegements that Babylon made against Israel. And this was the third one. And that's how things appeared on the ground. But in verse 2, I want you to notice with me how Daniel pulls back and he gives us an aerial view of the same situation. If verse 1 provides the historical reference point, then verse 2 provides us with the theological perspective. And there we learn that it was actually the Lord who delivered Judah into King Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Now that raises a question, right? Why would God deliver his chosen people into the hands of a wicked king and allow them to be carried away as captives? And there's several layers to this answer, but perhaps the main one is that for decades, the people of God had disregarded his commandments and they had ignored his prophets who were coming with messages of warning saying, repent or judgment is coming. At one point, the Lord sent the prophet Jeremiah to the king, Jehoiakim, with a letter in hand warning him to repent. But instead of reading it, the king took the letter, this divinely inspired letter, and he threw it into the fire. <clears throat> and so, after so many failed attempts at getting the attention of his people, the Lord allows Nebuchadnezzar to serve as his, you know, tool of discipline to carry Israel away captive for a predetermined amount of time. This teaches us that God is sovereign in the affairs of men. Even when it appears that things are coming unglued and, and when things are just kind of happening willy-nilly, God is on the throne and he is in control and he's working all things together according to the counsel of his predetermined will. Amen to that. And so, Babylon comes down, they sack Jerusalem, and verse 3 tells us, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. These guys will figure prominently in future stories. Some of you may recall the fiery furnace with those three guys. But what I want you to note from this section is that Nebuchadnezzar is laying out a path to conformity here. And that's the first fill in the blank in our outline if you want to go ahead and pull out a pen or type that in. This is the path to conformity. Nebuchadnezzar was a smart guy. When he went in and overthrew a particular region or, or a city, he wouldn't just kill everyone like the Assyrians did before him, but rather he would, he would take the brightest and the best, 
And he would bring them back to Babylon. And then he would reprogram them. He would deprogram them and then retrain them in Babylonian thought and culture. So then he could deploy them as sub-rulers or governors in the various realms of his kingdom. Over the course of a three-year rigorous and intensive study program, these guys would be taught to think like Babylonians, act like Babylonians, and speak like Babylonians. And we're told that among those who were carried from Jerusalem to Babylon were Daniel and his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So I want you to step into their shoes now. And imagine with me what these guys were going through as they just saw and witnessed the destruction of their homeland, the pillaging and the murder of innocent civilians, and the destruction of their beloved temple there in Jerusalem. And then they are led away 900 miles from their home to Babylon. When they arrived, what they saw would have overwhelmed them. I mean, ancient Jerusalem was impressive by any standard there with Solomon's temple. But not even it could compare with the splendor of ancient Babylon. There's a, an ancient historian who dates back to the times of Babylon. His name is Herodotus. And he gives us a, a, a description of what this ancient city looked like. And this is in its waning years of prominence. And he describes a city that stretched for some 200 miles along the Euphrates River. For comparison's sake, that's about three times the size of Washington, D.C. Just an absolutely humongous city. It was surrounded by walls that stretched 300 feet into the sky. These walls were 80 feet thick. They had within them 100 brass gates and 220 watchtowers. These engineers were were just spectacular. They they had found ways to divert part of the Euphrates River so that it wrapped around both sides of the city of Babylon to serve as a defensive moat. And then it was redirected as well to go through the city so that as you were walking downtown, you would have a, a, a meandering river right next to you. Rising from the center of the city was its most impressive structure, though. There was this ziggurat, kind of like a pyramid-shaped building rising higher than the 300 feet of walls. And it was a terraced structure, and at each level were planted lush, green, verdant, beautiful gardens. They had found ways to pump water up to the top, an engineering marvel. And these were the hanging gardens of Babylon that perhaps you're familiar with or at least have heard about. They were one of the seven ancient wonders of the world at that time. And so for Daniel and his, his contemporaries, they have just finished this 900-mile trek walking through the hot arid desert of the Middle East, and then they come upon this beautiful uh, city with this magnificent mountain-like structure, green in color. It would have, the colors would have burst against the bleak backdrop of that arid climate. Then when they get there, instead of being thrown in prison or beheaded or whatever their fears were, they're brought into the palace. They're treated like royalty. Where then upon for the next three years, they are given the finest of the king's delicacies. They get to sit at his table, all while being immersed in Babylonian thought and culture. It was a subtle and seductive form of brainwashing that was all 
carefully designed and crafted to get them to forget about where they came from and the gods that they knew and worshipped. The hope was that by the end of the three years, they would no longer see themselves as Hebrews, but they would see themselves as Babylonians. And here's where we can start to make some application to our own lives. You see, just like Daniel and his friends, we find ourselves as Christian believers living in an exiled state. We live in a place that wants us desperately to conform to a pattern of thinking that is antithetical to the the value system that we read about in this book. I mean, just think about what the algorithms that that kind of push a particular narrative towards your news feed or your social media feed or what you hear on the news or what you read in print or what you see in film. It is all spoon feeding us and, you know, in some ways forcibly pushing down our throats a worldview that doesn't align with what God's standards say. Amen. Paul wrote about this and he warned us of this attempt that the world would make on our belief systems in Romans 12 too. I'd love it if we could read this together out loud. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I've underlined that first phrase. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. I like the way, I believe it's the message translation of the Bible uh, interprets this phrase. It says, don't allow the world to squeeze you into its mold. How does the world do that? Well, by employing the same tactics that Nebuchadnezzar used some 2,500 years ago. And, And as we look a little more closely at the verses we just read, I want to highlight three different methods that that Nebuchadnezzar employed to assimilate the Jewish people, because these are the methods the enemy uses to get us to embrace a world belief or a world uh, view that, that doesn't align with scripture. And the first component of his plan involved isolation. He ripped these guys away from their families, their homes, their support systems, their houses of worship, and he brought them to a new place where they would have none of that. So let this serve as just a word of encouragement and exhortation and perhaps warning. Whenever you begin to isolate yourself from other believers, you are walking on slippery ground. You're putting yourself in danger. And the reason for that is obvious. We weren't designed to live this life on our own. That's why the book of Hebrews says, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. And so, by the way, congratulations on being here this morning. For those of you who resolved to make church more of a priority, your church attendance so far in 2024 is 100%. You're doing awesome. But we're reminded through this example that when we isolate ourselves, we remove ourselves from those support systems, it's not long before the fire in our heart begins to cool. And this was part of his plan. Nebuchadnezzar figured that if he could get these guys away from their familiar environments, it would be easier to get them to adopt and embrace a Babylonian mindset. By the way, isn't this what we see happening with a lot of kids when they are uprooted from their families and we ship them off to secular colleges? For the first time, many of these kids find themselves on their own. They're making their own decisions for the first time. And and so perhaps it shouldn't come as a surprise that statistically, somewhere between 50 and 80% of Christian students 
walk away from their faith or stop attending church during their college years. It's they're isolated. Now, am I suggesting you shouldn't send your kids to college? Of course not. College can be a good thing, and you should go if God's calling you there. But what I'm saying is, wherever we send our kids, we need to do whatever we can. We need to encourage them to build up those support networks, those systems that will help them thrive in their new context. Again, because we weren't meant to do the Christian life on our own. Amen. So that's the first aspect of his plan. It involved isolation. The second aspect of Nebuchadnezzar's plan to assimilate the Israelites involved flat out indoctrination. We see this at the end of verse four, where we read that he was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians, the language and the literature. It was more or less a university of Babylon, and there they would receive a first-class secular education in the finest that Babylon had to offer in the arts, philosophy, science, history, and astrology. They didn't necessarily have astronomy classes back then. It was all tied to uh, their lives being written out in the stars. And of course, religion would have played a key role in this education system as well where they would be taught the mysteries and the mythologies that surrounded the pantheon of Babylonian gods. And again, we're reminded of the dangers of just delegating the responsibility of educating our kids and outsourcing that to other people. Can I just get real with you? There's a difference in education and indoctrination. And a lot of what's happening in our our school systems today is just flat out indoctrination. And it's coming from a particular place. We can't assume that when we send our kids into the classroom, that that everything they learn and hear is going to align with our biblical worldviews. And so it falls on us to be the primary educators of our kids, not just with math and science and reading and arithmetic, but but also with the underpinnings of the faith to understand the dangers of just, you know, removing ourselves from that equation. All you have to do is go back to the 1920s where Hitler and the Nazi party specifically targeted German youth as a special audience for their propaganda messages. Millions of German young people were won over to Nazism in the classroom, where history was conveniently rewritten to highlight the the German people and the superiority of the Aryan race. Here's a quote from Hitler himself. These boys and girls enter our organizations at 10 years of age, and often for the first time, they get a little fresh air. After four years of the young folk, they go on to the Hitler Youth, where we have them for another four years. And even if they're still not complete national socialists, they go to labor service and are smoothed out for another six or seven months. And whatever class consciousness or social status might still be left, the Weimreich, or German for Armed Forces, will take care of that, end quote. Again, you can make the obvious application to our lives. For those of you who are parents, you need to be familiar with this book and what you believe so that you can impart that to your kids. And it can't just be something you say. It has to be something that you back up with your life. That responsibility falls on all of our shoulders. So it's isolation, it's indoctrination. And thirdly, this is the three-pronged strategy. It culminates in full immersion. Immersion. 
And we see this in verse five, where it says they, they were to eat like Babylonians and drink like Babylonians. The goal was to entice them with all the finest things that life in Babylon had to offer. And such immersion would wear them down. It would ebb away at the moral fibers of their being until they were eventually won over to the dark side. And then to top it off, their names would be changed. Their very identities would be replaced with new identities. Now, each of these guys had beautiful Hebrew names which corresponded in some way to the worship of the God of Yahweh, the Hebrew God, our God. But they were handed new identities that corresponded with their new Babylonian gods. Again, just a quick sidebar here. We live in the midst of a context and in a culture where our kids' identities are being attacked. And is it any wonder that you know, the, the percentage of kids struggling with their own identity is, is just growing exponentially? about who am I and, and where do I belong? Recent data shows that the number of people seeking treatment for gender dysphoria has doubled in the last 10 years. And the biggest increase is among children and adolescents. And so kids are confused about their sexual orientation or about their biology. Am I a guy or a girl? And, and, and it's like, how did we get here? And the question, the answer is it didn't happen overnight, but it's happened very intentionally with the drip, drip, drip of immersion into a Babylonian worldview. And yet, while everyone around him might have found themselves just kind of subtly and slowly being immersed into a Babylonian context and culture, one man stood out. He refused to fit in. His name is Daniel, and he made a different choice. We see it in verse 8, where it says, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Oh, I love that phrase, but Daniel resolved. Everybody say, but Daniel. He resolved. Well, you didn't have to copy that, but thank you. The King James Version says, he purposed in his heart. Another translation says he made up his mind. Instead of letting other people do the thinking for him, Daniel made up his own mind. And here's what I love about his example. He said, you can change everything, my location, my education, my language, even my name, but you can't change my heart because that belongs to God. You see, Daniel would spend the rest of his life living in Babylon. But Babylon would never live in him. There's a difference. Jesus says that we are called to be in the world without becoming part of the world. Salt needs to be sprinkled in, in, in its context in order to provide flavor and do all of its salty things. <laughs> and so too, you and I have been sprinkled like salt into this earth to awaken the thirst for the living God. And so we see an example of that in Daniel. Despite the intense pressure he faced to conform, he stood his ground. And again, what an example he set for us. I love what the Lord spoke through Moses to his people in Exodus 23 too. Can we read this together out loud? It's in your notes. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. I want to say that again. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. 
takes a real man or woman of faith, of convictions, to stand up for what's right instead of floating downstream with all the other dead fish. Perhaps Daniel saw his contemporaries being seduced by the delicacies of Babylon or Perhaps he even felt his own heart slipping or drifting away from the Lord. For whatever reason, this is the defining moment in his life where he draws a line in the sand and says, no more. And it's an interesting place to do that. I mean, if you think about it, he didn't seem to object to his worldly education or even to his name being changed. But when they asked him to partake of that which God clearly forbade, That's where he drew the line. Now, how did eating the king's food violate God's commandments? Well, really quickly. First, it hadn't been prepared in a kosher way, so that would have defiled him, made him unclean, unworthy to worship. Second, it would have been offered to the pagan idols and gods before it was served to these young guys, and that would have defiled him. And then thirdly, Daniel knew that by sharing a meal with the king, it was tantamount to saying, I want to be in fellowship with you. We recognize that even today. If you invite someone into your home and sit down at your table, you're saying, I want to be your friend. And Daniel realized in this moment, I can either be the friend of the world or I can be the friend of God, but I can't do both. And so he had reached the proverbial fork in the road and he had cast his lot with heaven. Now, where did he get this resolve from? I think we can only point to a couple of uh, sources. He was trained in a godly home. He grew up with godly parents, or perhaps it was his grandparents, or maybe he had a youth leader or something like that that poured into him. But somewhere along the way, Daniel received a godly education. He lived out the truth of that proverb, Proverbs 22, 6, which says this. Let's go ahead and read this together out loud. Start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. And so it's our, go- our job, again, parents, where we are called, you know, we can partner with our church and we can partner with our youth programs and all the rest, but we are called to lay that foundation for our kids. Parents, you have no idea how important your role is in training up your children. You say, well, I'm not equipped. I, I, didn't, I don't have a Bible degree like you do, Pastor Daniel. And uh, to that, I would say there are so many tools And so many resources available to you. We want to equip you. We want to come alongside you in this journey and put tools in your tool belt so that you can confidently point your kids to the Lord. So this is Daniel's upbringing. And then I want you to recognize this as well. He risks a lot in this moment. I mean, his head could have been taken for making this decision. And and beyond that, he's ruining any chance that he had of, of advancing his career. Perhaps you're familiar with the saying, you've got to go along to get along. You can't climb the ladder while rocking the boat. And and so if this doesn't go according to plan, Daniel could lose a lot more than just his future. He could lose his head. How easy would it have been for him to, to justify eating the king's meat? I mean, why make such a big fuss? Others around him were certainly indulging. Perhaps they reasoned, hey, everyone else is doing it. You heard that one before. Or when in Rome? Or why should I honor God with my choices? He's clearly abandoned us. Here we are in Babylon. Or what about this one? What's the big deal? It's such a small thing. God will understand. 
And these are excuses we're all familiar with, and Daniel could have used any one of them, but instead of choosing the path of compromise, he chose instead to stand by his convictions. He was unyielding and resolved and unwilling to bend in this area. And here's where it gets really personal, guys. Because every day we make choices, big choices that are punctuated by life-altering decisions and little choices. You ever heard the saying that we make our decisions and then our decisions turn around and make us? Well, it's true. In large part, who you are today and what you see in your world today is a result of the choices you made yesterday and a week ago and last year. Now, most of the time we don't realize how important small choices can be. We think of just the big ones that we got to get right. But stories like this are here to remind us that oftentimes it's the smallest decisions that end up having the biggest impact in our lives. I mean, it's, it's not overstating things to say that this is the critical defining moment in Daniel's life. It doesn't appear to be that big of a deal, of course, but this decision helps shape the next 60 years of his life and the successive kingdoms that will come to power. I mean, if he chooses to compromise in this small way, we might not have the rest of the book of Daniel. And that means no Daniel in the lion's den. That's the, the key and the hallmark story from the book of Daniel. But if he doesn't demonstrate a willingness to be led by his convictions here, I don't know if that story plays out the same way. I mean, if he had chosen just to blend in and go along with the crowd, would he have really had the conviction to stand up to the king in that instance? I'm not so sure. I think it was principally because he had made this decision, he'd drawn this line in the sand, that when it came time to make that choice, which could very clearly cost him his life, not to bow down to the king's statue, that he didn't even have to think about it. In fact, here's what we read in Daniel chapter 6. After the king gives the edict, you're not allowed to pray to anybody but me. Daniel goes home and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. Now notice this phrase, as was his custom since early days. From the time Daniel was just a little boy, he learned the pattern and developed the discipline of getting on his knees with God. And he wasn't going to change that, not for the king, not for anybody. So again, we see it was this small choice, purposing in his heart. This is the kind of person I want to be. I'm a man of prayer that laid the groundwork for his greatest moment. Here we are talking about him 2,500 years later, and it's all because he chose to honor God in the small things. If you don't have the resolve to put God first in small daily decisions, then how can you expect to stand for him when it matters most? So again, where might you begin to develop just small patterns, small habits, small disciplines? Over time, those things will pay off. I love what Pastor Craig Rochelle's on this subject, and I quote, a life of faithfulness is made up of hundreds of thousands of small decisions that compound over time that actually lead us in the right direction. It's not just the big things, but it's often the small things that no one sees that result in the big impact that everyone wants. 
Those of you who are just disciplined about the way you go about your life and you honor God in the small ways, it's going to pay off for you in, in ways that you can't even begin to imagine. And, and by the way, the flip side of that is also true. When we allow little compromises to creep into our life, they end up forming cracks in the foundation of our character that if left unaddressed will eventually lead to our ruin. They will cost you more than you could imagine. So deal with those things now. Daniel purposed in his heart. He resolved not to defile himself. Now, God had caused the official, this is verse 9, to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should I see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over him and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and he tested them for 10 days. I love this guy for so many reasons. And here we see that in addition to being a man of convictions and principles, Daniel is also extremely wise. He stands his ground. He draws a line in the sand, but he does so in a particular way. He does it with grace and tact and humility. You know what tact is. It's not just saying the right thing, but it's knowing how to say it. If you say the right thing in the wrong way, you're not going to get the desired results. So how you say something is just as important as what you say. And there are several attractive features about the way Daniel went about making this proposal. First, instead of being arrogant or obnoxious or, you know, picketing or something like that, which which would have certainly cost him his life, he won over his boss using tact and diplomacy. Secondly, he was obedient. He followed the chain of command. Third, his request was reasonable. He says, give us a 10-day test. Let's just see. And fourthly, it was measurable. All the guard had to do at the end of 10 days was look at Daniel and his friends and see. He could determine. He says, then we're in your hands. Do what you will. And in giving, proposing this test to the, the, the leader, he was also testing his God. And God's okay with these kinds of tests. God, you've got me backed into a corner here, but I'm giving you an opportunity. And at the end of 10 days, either God would show up and show off, or he wouldn't. But what I love about Daniel is that he gave the Lord the opportunity to work. God is is looking for opportunities, men and women who will say, Lord, I'm putting this in your hands. The ball is in your court. What are you going to do? And they're just waiting because God wants to show up for his people. And we see that in verse 15. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar, and the king talked with them. So this is kind of like their final exam. If you pass, you're brought into the king's service. If, you're, if you don't pass, you die. So it was a pretty intense final exam. And he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole 
kingdom. Can we close by talking about the person God honors? This is the third point in your outline. This is the person God honors. I can't read this story without thinking about what God said to Eli, the the, uh, temple priest. He said, those who honor me, I will honor. You lift God up and you give him a chance to do something special with you. God was given the door of opportunity to bless Daniel because he honored him first. And Daniel ends up standing out from his peers. I don't know how many captives were led from Jerusalem to Babylon, but Daniel and his three friends were 10 times smarter than everyone else. That's saying something. And so again, as we conclude this morning, I want to leave you with this thought. We're all telling stories. This is Daniel's story. And the way it played out, it was decided because of this decision he made to follow the Lord. And so too with us, the stories you'll tell tomorrow will be determined by the choices you make today. And so are there any areas, are there any decision matrices that need to be addressed? that need to be changed, perhaps? Where do you need to start putting God first? Perhaps today is the day you draw a line in the sand as you see yourself being caught up into the cultural value systems of this world. You need to determine that you're going to put God first. Here we are in the first month of a new year, and it's a good time to kind of establish some rhythms and routines. Perhaps you could start by giving God the the first part of your day. I resolve, I purpose in my heart, I'm going to give God the first part of my day. Before I reach for my phone, I'm going to reach for the word, giving him the first part of your day. You could also resolve to give him the first part of your week by making this place a priority. So you come here, you gather with God's people, we exalt his name, his presence comes down, and our hearts are shaped and transformed By the power of the Holy Spirit, we're conformed into his image in this place. So you give him the first part of your day by opening the word. You give him the first part of your week by coming to church. And then you give him the first part of your month by taking the first fruits of what you're blessed with at your job. And you tithe off of that. You begin to sow into the work of God. You're saying, God, I'm putting you first. And I'm putting my money where my mouth is. And no, this is in no way a money grab from another preacher. But it is... It is so true that our hearts are often wrapped around our wallets. And God says, I want your heart. So honor me by giving me the first fruits and see if I don't bless you tenfold, just like I did with Daniel. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.